It's six o'clock, and you are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Good evening. I'm Claudio Mendonça, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight, the California Report covers the new statewide public health order that requires all healthcare workers and state employees to provide proof of having received a COVID-19 vaccine to their employers or face regular testing. Then, after a brief look at local headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery talks with economist Gary Zimmerman about the Federal Reserve's monetary policy meeting happening today and tomorrow. We close tonight's newscast with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A new statewide public health order means that starting next month, all healthcare workers and state employees will be required to provide proof of a COVID vaccination to their employers. If they don't provide that proof, they'll have to get regularly tested. KQED's Laura Clivens has more. These employees, including both public and private health care workers, must show proof of vaccination with a physical card or a code from the California Department of Public Health. If workers can't or won't, they'll have to get tested one to two times per week and wear a mask. Governor Gavin Newsom. We're exhausted by the politicalization of this pandemic, and it needs to be called out. It's a choice to live with this virus. You don't have a choice to go out and drink and drive and put everybody else's lives at risk. This also applies to workers in jails, nursing homes, homeless shelters, dentists' offices, and other private businesses. Here's Newsom again. And we hope this example of public and private leadership as it relates to vaccine verifications and or mandated testing will lead to others to replicate this example in the private sector. In the past, employees were allowed to simply say whether they were or were not vaccinated. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. The new rules will affect about 246,000 state employees alone, and private employers outside of health care are being encouraged to adopt similar standards. And a terrible incident in the Central Valley. A family and a Kern County Sheriff's deputy are dead following a shooting in the city of Wasco over the weekend. Valley Public Radio Sarith Hawk reports. The standoff Sunday lasted hours and ended when authorities say the armed suspect climbed the roof of the Wasco home and was shot and killed. Five people died, including a mother and her two sons, in addition to the suspect. Sheriff Donnie Youngblood got emotional during a news conference Monday as he spoke about notifying the family of his colleague, 35-year-old Deputy Philip Compass, who sustained fatal injuries during the confrontation. I can tell you they're devastated, as we are. Uh, this is um, was a star. Local deputies answered a call on Sunday in response to shots fired in a Wasco home. Compass was one of the SWAT team members called in to assist the officers after the situation escalated. Deputy Philip Compass and Deputy Xander Guerrero were hit by the suspect's rounds, and two other deputies were wounded by shrapnel. Compass died later at the hospital. Deputy Guerrero has since been released. As of Monday evening, the suspect was believed to be the father of the family killed in the home. Investigators are looking into a restraining order issued against the suspect to better understand how he obtained firearms under the order. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno.
It's become a seasonal tradition in California. Homes burn down, and then we hear stories of resilience. Fire victims promising to rebuild and to recover. But once the smoke clears, they learn that can be a very difficult process. One that can take years, and that's if they can even afford to stick it out. From KCRW in Santa Monica, Kaylee Wells reports on those who've stayed in burned areas and those who've left. Kat Merrick thought she'd be back home by now. She lost her Ventura home in the 2017 Thomas Fire, the largest fire in Southern California history. She says it's still hard to talk about almost four years later. It was just devastating. You're in shock and not only knowing that your house is gone, but that I would say over 100 friends that I know lost everything as well that night. Merrick sent in her building plans three years ago and is still waiting on Ventura County to approve them. And while she waits, she's living out of a mobile home on her property. But even that took two and a half years to get approved. Before that, she was in an RV. Merrick says she'll end up paying for a lot of her house out of pocket because she, like so many others, was underinsured. That can happen if you buy a property and you don't update the insurance policy as the property value goes up. So if you bought a home for $500,000 and decades later it burns down and is worth a million, you're still insured for a $500,000 home. It's been a, a nightmare. And I hear stories from so many others that are in the same boat we are, and they're just, some have given up. And if you're renting, giving up can sometimes feel like the only option. That is the difficult choice that Desiree McAleer faced after the Valley Fire in 2015 up in Northern California. For my own healing, I needed to move. And I tell people it's like an abusive situation. So if you're in an abusive relationship, you leave that abusive relationship. The Valley Fire moved so fast, McAleer never got an evacuation notice. Her neighbor didn't get out in time and died. Her employer owned the home and the property insurance gave her a few thousand for everything she lost inside the home. But she jumped from couch to couch for a year before she picked up her life and moved to Southern California. Dave McLaughlin lives in Malibu Lake, the farthest west corner of L.A. County, which was devastated by the 2018 Woolsey Fire. Sitting on the porch of his home that did survive, he says of the roughly 200 homes around Malibu Lake, 55 burned. I don't think one has been fully rebuilt yet. I think there's, uh, I'm looking around the lake right now, counting one, two, three, four down the lakeside, five, probably seven underway, seven of those 55. For homeowners like Kat Merrick back in Ventura, even if she's living in a burn scar, it's worth the rebuild. You can see the ocean um, and also then turn your the other direction and you're looking at the Topa Topas in the evening as the sun sets, you know. And as we've been told by friends that are in the real estate business, you'll never find a property like that again in in Ventura County. You just won't. You won't. And now that more people can work remotely, more people are moving into these fire-prone areas. Wildfire is a bigger part of life for Californians than it's ever been. But even as the state gets drier and the chance of wildfire rises, some Californians will continue to reconstruct and roll the dice again. For The California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Support for The California Report comes from Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation 
working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing defendable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, July 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and talk tomorrow. Nevada County Public Health reported 69 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. 193 are active and 7 are hospitalized. These numbers would have placed Nevada County in the purple tier under the Blueprint for a Safer Economy, California's color-coded county tier system that was terminated on June 15th of this year. Although the Blueprint's restrictions, such as physical distancing mandates and capacity limits on businesses, have ended, officials still encourage unvaccinated people to wear masks indoors, to get tested if you feel sick, and to get vaccinated. COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective and are available for free to everyone age 12 or older, regardless of immigration or insurance status. You can schedule an appointment for a vaccine by visiting myturn.ca.gov. Taking a look at local weather, for Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight mostly clear with a low around 66. Wednesday will be sunny and hot with a high near 97. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear, with a low around 49. On Wednesday, expect isolated showers and thunderstorms after 2 p.m. After that, it'll be sunny, with a high near 83. In Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, clear, with a low around 68. Wednesday will be sunny and hot, with a high near 102. The Federal Reserve met today to discuss monetary policy. On tonight's economic report, retired Federal Reserve economist Gary Zimmerman talks to Paul Emery about what the outcome may be. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, wealth management advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Gary Zimmerman, uh, nice to have you back. Uh, let's talk about the economy. Lots going on, starting with the Federal Reserve's monetary policy meeting that they're having this week. And maybe we'll talk about inflation and then, of course, the big one, the national debt. Uh, does that sound good? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That's, that's a lot to cover in several minutes, so let's get started. Okay. Yes, the Federal Reserve policymakers, uh, that's the 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents from around the country and the Federal Reserve governors from Washington, D.C. are meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week to discuss and consider and evaluate the economy and the financial markets and to vote on an appropriate monetary policy for the economy, given the Fed's goals for full employment and low and stable inflation. Um, So that's happening this week, then? Yes. And the big question, Paul, is that, you know, economists and financial analysts are certainly thinking about what the economic and financial data are telling us and what the policymakers might decide and why. Um, At the meeting this week, I don't expect the Fed to make any significant changes to short term or overnight interest rates or to announce they'll make immediate or 
will immediate changes or start slowing or reducing the bond buying program that's designed to lower the longer term interest rates. But they undoubtedly will be discussing and debating these decisions and their timing um, at this meeting. Um, you know, I think they'll likely wait to get a better handle on the impact of COVID and the Delta variant on the economy. And then also on inflation, the question is, is the recent increase just a temporary spike or are we going to continue to see it you know, at rates well above uh, 2%? And it may still be too early to know there. And then also, you know, as of this week, suddenly we have an increased risk of uncertainty about the economy over what might happen with the debt ceiling increase and you know, <laughs> problems there. Well, we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But first, um, how will we know what the Fed decides to do with interest rates and other monetary policy tools like, say, buying bonds? That'll be headline news, Paul. So the easy answer is that the uh, decision is announced about 30 minutes after the two-day meeting concludes on Wednesday. Um, after that meeting, Fed Chair Jay Powell will have a press conference and we'll learn more about what they discussed and what the Fed was thinking about you know, potential policy changes or continuing with current policy and, and why. Um, so that's that's important. Another thing is that, you know, three weeks after this meeting, they will actually release the minutes of that meeting or the Fed will publish them and we'll get to see what they were discussing and debating um, before they made their decision. So that's an important information for keeping track of what what they're likely to do in the future and sort of signaling about future behavior. Well, Gary, last time we spoke, you mentioned the Fed policymakers projections from their June meeting. Are they expecting inflation to continue rising or to maybe fall back? closer to the 2% goal. Yeah, 2% inflation is the Fed's average or longer run goal. Uh, so the recent movement and trends in the overall inflation data clearly will be discussed and analyzed. Um, the recent surge in key inflation indicators in 2021 as the economy has been expanding rapidly. Um, there have also been supply shortages and production bottlenecks as a result from the overhang from COVID. And all of those have, you know, are having effect of driving up, driving up prices and wages to some extent. So those will be important topics to discuss. Um, still, at their, with their June projections and the Fed chair's recent congressional testimony, uh, su suggests to me that most of the policymakers believe the spike in inflation will be temporary and not the start of a, a major overall inflationary trend. Well, Gary, given the national debt has been in the news recently with some politicians suggesting it should not be raised, uh, what does that mean and what repercussions might it have on the economy? <laughs> well, Paul, uh, um, in a word, potentially, uh, I would say catastrophic. Um, the federal government has been running large deficits, spending more than it receives, and um, that has been a case uh, most of the time, at least since the late 1990s, and that's not necessarily a crisis uh, at current debt levels, you know, although one might fairly ask what's the up optimal or appropriate level of national debt relative to the size of the economy, um, you know, and, and we're perhaps a little on the high side, but, you know, Today, the public debt um, holdings are about equal to the annual GDP for the economy. Um, that's that's not a crisis level, in my opinion. You know, still, um, you know, it's important to remember that the 2018 corporate tax cuts, um, the 2020 COVID spending, the 2021 any additional COVID-related spending, uh, trying to get the economy back to a full recovery. All of these were mostly financed by borrowing or will be financed by borrowing. 
Well, Gary, one more question. What happens if the federal government can't borrow? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I think we go from a political stunt to a catastrophic, potential catastrophic you know, disaster. So if the federal government can't borrow or worse yet starts failing to pay back or even creates the impression or the possibility that they're not going to pay back um, some of their debts, the U.S. Treasury will go from being the lowest cost risk-free borrower in the economy, paying the lowest interest rates to borrow, uh, to suddenly becoming, uh, as a result of politics, I think in this case, becoming a high-risk, high-cost borrower, or worse, they may not be able to borrow at all if, if people are not expecting to get paid back. So, you know, and that's a problem. They need to refinance um, about $22 trillion in publicly held federal government debt, uh, in addition to any new debt uh, that comes out, you know, each year. So, you know, and I think another important point from my that I worry about is, uh, you know, could this could cause uh, disruptions to the whole financial system. Uh, it's important because the U.S. Treasury debt, which is, you know, makes up the national debt, is often used as the risk free collateral for many financial transactions and financial instruments in the economy. Um, losing that risk free perception would totally disrupt the financial markets, uh, both in the U.S. and globally, where, you know, U.S. debt is, is held by investors or directly or as collateral. Um, so failure to raise the debt ceiling, um, you know, causing the perception that, you know, we could get U.S. Treasury defaults um, could just cause severe market disruptions that, you know, could be catastrophic and probably would lead to much higher interest rates for many borrowers. So, you know, in the past, most of the time, cooler heads have eventually prevailed. Um, and, you know, this has not happened, but, you know, it's it's a risk. time when we probably don't need any more risks. Thank you, Gary. Okay. Thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. The basic premise of capitalism is a transaction between individuals where two parties buy, sell, or swap goods or services at a price that is agreeable to both and the value of the transaction is kept by both. This basic transaction has enabled humankind from the beginning to exist by acquiring what they need from another member of the species. The economic model of capitalism is the same mechanism but on a grander scale. The transaction can be modified with the agreement of both participants as long as the participants and only the participants make the modifications to the agreement, a capitalistic transaction still has taken place. Simply put, it is a willing transaction between two parties or more to the satisfaction of all without outside interference. That said, in recent months, I've been asking myself if our economy is indeed broken. But knowing that as long as transactions are taking place, and they are, the economy is functioning, hence by the definition, is unbroken. It would be impossible to actually break an economy, as people always need to procure things from one another. However, it is becoming evident, as it has happened so many times before in humankind's history, that intervention into this basic transactional event can move an economy towards a breaking point. 
When interference into this basic transaction occurs, economic distortions materialize that begin to seemingly make little sense. These distortions are caused by intervention into this basic transaction. The intervention can be a natural obstacle, such as bad weather, but more often in modern society, it is a third party interfering with the agreement between the original participant. Example of a third party interference would be forcing one party to accept the terms of the other. Think terms or conditions not agreeable to one or both parties. It can also be adding or subtracting from the value of the items exchanged. Think force rationing or mandated minimums or maximums, or demanding a subsequent value transaction for every standard transaction. Think tax or subsidy or surcharge. Obviously, in our modern-day society, the basic transaction is laden with do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, deductions, surcharges, fees, or taxes. The worth of each transaction has been altered by such additions or subtractions, and because of the decades of intervention, we may finally be seeing what starts to resemble a breakage of the economy. Some may call it a tipping point. Examples of these distortions today would be our high unemployment rate while businesses have difficulty finding workers, and this condition persists nationwide a severe misallocation and highly unbalanced distribution of wealth, and a necessity to manufacture intrinsically worthless receipts, which might be our currency and deficit spending, to address the economic maladies that have materialized because of these distortions. Other symptoms include the necessity of an ever-increasing safety net to constituents, this despite improved efficiencies throughout history in manufacturing techniques, a perceived need for ever-increasing regulation and taxation in order to sustain the system, and increased violence and unrest as a result of these economic distortions that wreak havoc on members of the economy caused by more and more interventions. The more havoc that materializes, the more these third parties feel it necessary to intervene. Plainly put, what started as a simple transaction has somehow morphed into something that is no longer accomplishing its original purpose. Having attracted intervention by a host of others not part of the original transaction, the simple exchange of goods and services has morphed into something almost completely unsustainable and unrecognizable. What started as a working economic model moves more and more towards an unfunctional one. In summary, the capitalistic economic model is nothing more than people buying and selling at an agreeable price to both, with their needs fulfilled, and the value of the transaction is kept by both. When man tries to approve on this basic transaction for whatever the perceived reason, the natural economy begins to break apart as the basic transaction is interfered with. In conclusion, our economy may not be broken, but to this analyst may have reached a point as to be almost unrecognizable as to its original intent. Despite this, the interventions continue to increase, and the parties responsible for these interventions is growing larger by day. What comes next is usually more interventions to try and correct the distortions that the previous interventions have caused. That's it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed here are my own and not those of any bank or investment advisory firm, this station, its staff, management, or underwriters. Nothing stated is meant to ensure a guarantee or be construed as investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name's Mark Kuhnberg.
That concludes tonight's newscast. I hope that you'll tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking to Nevada County Public Health Officer Dr. Scott Kellerman about COVID-19 and vaccine hesitancy. KVMR is supported by John Hensley and Recreation Realty, offering essential real estate services since 1973, showing properties by appointment following safety protocols. Recreation Realty, two Nevada City locations, Broad Street and Highway 20, 265-6565, nevadacountyproperties.net. And Grass Valley Downtown Association, presenting Thursday Night Market, Community Street Fair, and Farmer's Market at Main and Mill Streets on July 29th from 6 to 9 p.m., featuring live music, vendors, and food. DowntownGrassValley.com Stick around. Next up is Embracing the Journey, and at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! Thanks for listening. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a great evening. (music) Thank you.